All right, you guys. Good morning, contact family. We're going to finish our series on Daniel today. Now, last week, you remember, if you were here, we went ahead and looked over chapter 7 through 12, and we did an overview of the whole book just to make sure we had a good idea of what it was. But this week, we got to go back and we got to hit a chapter that is really important in the book of Daniel. It's one of the most important books, not only in the book of Daniel, it's one of the most important books in all of the Old Testament. Sorry, chapters, no, I said books. One of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament. And we're going to see why as we look today. So we actually get a special title card for this one. Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7. So that's going to be our big topic today. We are going to watch another video in the middle today. So we're going to see how I wrangle that, running back and forth up to the front. But it's going to be good. So we will be in Daniel chapter 7, but we're not going to start in Daniel chapter 7. Because we want to look at the New Testament some for this. All right. Now, if you are familiar with Jesus and you have read through the Gospels, you might think Jesus calls himself Son of God all the time, or maybe he calls himself Messiah or Christ. Both of those words are translation of a word that means anointed one, the one who got oil poured over them and made them king. Okay, so basically Messiah or Christ means king, and then Son of God. We kind of understand what that means theoretically, right? But Jesus really doesn't use those. In fact, almost every time when someone calls him that, he'll say, you say that I am. Or he'll say something like, like he asks Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And what does he say? You remember? He says, don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Isn't that a weird thing to do? Wouldn't you think that the Son of God who's coming into the world to save it would want people to know who he was? There's, there's some different thoughts on that in the room. It'd almost be bragging. Yeah, there could be some of that stuff. So some of it. So then there's this other title, Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man appears a lot in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. But when Ezekiel uses it, it basically means the same thing as, like, mortal or human. Like, hey, you, you person. But Jesus uses it a little different. See, Jesus calls himself Son of Man 78 times in the Gospels. That's a lot. That's a lot. And you hear that and you say, Son of Man. For someone who is divine, that's a weird title. Why would you call yourself human one or something of that nature? That kind of just plays up that you're a person. It doesn't really play up that you're God's son. At least that's how we hear it. Now, the way the people then would have heard it is a little different. Because the people at that time know their Bibles pretty well, especially the religious leaders. And you know what chapter of the Bible they know real well? Daniel chapter 7. Okay, so we're going to see that this is a loaded phrase. Uh, I was listening to a podcast about this, and they made a comparison. If you're Bruce Wayne walking around, and someone says, you're Batman, right? And he says, well, I'm the Dark Knight. I mean, does that still mean he's Batman? Yeah, you guys know that that's one of Batman's special titles, right? So there's something going on here. Yeah, Shirley says, I don't know. I don't know that. Okay, some of you guys know this. I know Terry knows this, because Terry knows comic books. Billy knows this. All right, some of you guys who watched the fantastic Dark Knight movies. Anyway, that's an aside. I'll talk about more movies later. Let's read from Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read from three of the Gospels. We'll get to all four of them throughout the course today. But Luke chapter 5, we're going to look at some of the ways Jesus uses this name, Son of Man. And this first story is, you remember there's the, the people up on the roof 
and they've got their friend who's a paralytic, and they dig a hole in the roof and lower him down. And starting in verse, was that 20? It says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. All right? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Okay? What's he doing? He's going to show that he has some power, right? He's going to show that he has something to back the other words that he says. Because I could tell you your sins are forgiven. It doesn't do anything. Right? But he's going to show that he has some backing to what he's saying. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home, praising God. Okay? So he's just healed this man and showed that his sins are forgiven. So the first thing Jesus thinks of when Jesus is using Son of Man, there's a lot of things we could pull, but we're pulling these three ideas. He has authority of or authority from God. When he says Son of Man... What does he think that means? Somebody that has God's authority to use God's power for healing, to use God's power to cleanse from sin. All right? Let's look at the next verse, Mark 10. Jesus called them together. He's teaching his uh, disciples. And said, Do you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them? We've been seeing that in the book of Daniel. We've been seeing kings ruling over and flaunting their authority and being abusive. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. Boy, makes you not want to be a leader so much, doesn't it? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay. What's the Son of Man mean to Jesus? He has authority of God, but his purpose is to offer himself for others. Is it to be given gold and paraded around and to have people come and serve him and, you know, fan him with big things and whatever like we see in movies? No. He's going to be the one down on his knees. He's going to be the one getting dirty for us. Giving his life for others. Let's look at this third verse. John chapter 3. Verse 13. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus at night. Verse 16 you guys know. One of the most popular verses in the Bible. It's a great one. We're not going to read it today. We're going to stop right short. But he's talking to Nicodemus one of the leaders of the law, one of the Pharisees, and he's explaining a little bit about who he is. He says, no one's ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. It's pretty significant. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's this weird story in the Old Testament about all the people are getting bit by these poisonous snakes that God has sent when they're rebelling in the wilderness after they come out of Egypt. And To heal them, God decides to say, you're going to make a bronze snake and you're going to stick it up on a pole. And anybody who looks at that snake is going to be healed of the poison. 
It's a weird story, right? But listen, Jesus is saying, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You hear what he's thinking about himself? He's like that snake, that bronze snake, that healed the people. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Okay, so there's a few things here, but the thing we really want to pull out of this, he's got authority, he's going to offer himself for others, he's going to be lifted up, or he's going to be exalted, to where people look on him and something happens. Okay? All right. Does that make clear sense now? It's, it's pretty, yep. So exalted like a king gets exalted up on his throne. When he's lifted up, he's given glory, he's given authority, he's given power, he's given rule. So that, that exalted has to do with that he is made very special by God. And we're going to see a little bit more of that here when we look in Daniel. Okay, now if you were here last week, you watched this video, and we saw this slide of Daniel chapter 7. So I just want you to kind of refresh your mind on some of the things going on here. We've got these beasts over here coming up out of the water, and then we've got this giant super beast that is extra angry and has got all these horns and they're arrogant horns and he's hurting the people of God there. You see him on the ground. But then one of these people gets brought up and, and put at God's side and the beast is destroyed. And what's going on here? What's going on? We're going to read some of this chapter. We're going to watch a video and hopefully it'll make a little more sense. And we're going to see why Jesus... You've already started to see a little bit of why Jesus thinks this is important. But this passage is going to really show you why Jesus uses this phrase and then how he's going to use it with the leaders in Israel. Okay, Daniel chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 7. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. Does that sound good? Now, this is bad. This is bad news. This is something that is crushing people, that is hurting people, that is destroying all the people. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. The little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. All right, so you got this horn. And remember, these horns all symbolize things. So this is symbols of kings, kings who are being arrogant who are putting themselves in the place of God and trying to decide what's right and wrong for themselves. Then, you see that this is like poetry? Okay, we're talking about something that is beyond understanding. Okay? There's something that our minds can't quite grasp. And the closest we can do is use poetry to get a look into what's happening. And that's what the Bible does all the time, especially when there's poetry, is these are things that are really challenging for us to get a conception of. And that's especially true in apocalyptic literature, where there's all kinds of symbols already that are already confusing us. But remember, what's apocalypse for the people that time also looks to the future a little bit, but it's to give you hope. Okay? It's to give you hope. So listen to this. I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days sat down to judge. Who's the Ancient of Days? God. God is the Ancient of Days. Okay, so what do we have? We have thrones set out. He's sitting down to judge. Okay, courtroom. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire. In a lot of the Bible imagery, God's throne is like a chariot. It has wheels and can, like, roll around. And a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. We've heard of the river of life before. What does the river of life give? Life, yeah. What is the river of fire doing that's coming out from God? 
judgment, okay, yeah, <laughs> we, we don't want to have to feel the river of fire, do we? No, we do not. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed, and its body was destroyed by fire. What's happened? Judgment on the beast, right? The beast has been judged and needs to be destroyed. Okay? The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw something, someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So this somebody that looks like a person gets brought up on the clouds and gets God's authority and everyone's going to worship him. Are we supposed to worship people? So what is this person? Who is this person? And why does Jesus call himself this person? Right? All right, I'm going to head to the back real quick. We're going to get a video running. Here we go. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ. That is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like 
beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain. He was jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more. All humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast, and as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. My daughter is really into Beauty and the Beast right now. And this weekend, we watched the live-action Beauty and the Beast for the first time. And if you don't know the story, uh, there's a prince who is prideful and selfish and arrogant. And this woman comes to him, and he casts her out. He thinks she looks too ugly. And she gives him a second chance, and he still does. And he is cursed to be turned into a beast because he's acting like a beast until he can get things right and he can figure out the way he needs to treat others and show others love and care. And I don't want to make him a Christ figure because he's not, but by the end of the movie, in the live-action one, he's holding 
Gaston, who is the main villain of the movie, by the neck, and he's about to drop him. And then he looks at him, and Gaston says, don't kill me, beast. And his eyes change, and they go from angry to something else in the beast's eyes. And he says, I am not a beast. And he puts him down. Gaston then shoots him and kills him. And he dies in the movie. But it's in that death that he is reborn. He's given, found love. He's realized how to love. And he's retransformed into a human. Have you heard that story recently in Daniel? I think we heard that story with Nebuchadnezzar who turned into a beast until he figured out how to give glory to God. I thought it was just really interesting watching it this weekend after having thought through all these things and worked on them for so long. I was like, man, that's, that's our story, right? Where we give ourselves over to hatred and anger and evil and all these other things. And, and it's not until we give up our lives that we can get rid of the beast the way that Jesus is offering it to us. So I hope you all enjoyed that video. We're going to talk about it just a little bit more. But first, I got a pop quiz for you. What is the most quoted or referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament? Anybody have an idea? It's not from Daniel. Nope, no guesses. It's from the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, the first half of the first verse. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. And you'll now you've all like, oh yeah, those of you who've read a lot, you're like, yeah, I definitely have heard that a bunch of times. And the reason that he keeps using this is it's this weird psalm where David is writing it and talking, and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. Now, David's the king, and Yahweh's the real king, so who's the Lord in between Yahweh God and David? And the claim that Jesus and the apostles make over and over again is that that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. All right? And so we're going to read this passage from Matthew that they talked about in the video. And so you're going to take this, this Psalm 110 verse and what we learned in Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to shove them together because these things go together. Because he said that he sat down. Well, he never sits down next to God in Daniel 7. So this is some two ideas merging together what Jesus is using. So he's in front. Well, I'll just read it to you. Matthew 26. Verse, what does it say, 57? Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the religious law and elders had gathered. All right, so this is the head Jewish guy. He is the most in charge, the most religious. He is the guy who's number one in all of the ruling of Israel as far as the Jewish people go. Now, Rome is the one who has a lot of power there. As far as Jewish people go, religious, this dude is number one. All right? Inside, the leading priests... And the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. What are they trying to do? They're trying to abuse him. They're trying to trample him. They're trying to destroy this good person. Right? But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And, you know, he said something like that, but he's talking about his body, Right? Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You've said it. He didn't even say yes to that, did he? He said, You've said it. 
And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you think the high priest knew what Jesus was saying? Yes. The high priest knows his Bible. He knows every verse. He can quote the entire Bible from memory because you have to to be a Pharisee. He knows every word. He's been studying it his whole life. He's number one in his game. He knows exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I am not just what you think I am. I am the one who is being trampled right now by you, the beast. The priest is the beast. Jerusalem is the beast. The temple structure is the beast because it's not following God's way. And you're about to see me exalted and sitting at God's right hand. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need another witness? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. And they killed him. What did we learn in the video? Where was Jesus' throne? It was the cross. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put a royal purple robe and ripped it off of his broken skin. And they hung him there to die, thinking that they had won. The beast saw the human one, the Son of Man, on the cross. We see the eternal king on his throne. Jesus had the authority from God. He was, giving him, he was giving himself for others, and he was exalted to the place of honor. And later, in the book of Acts, we see Stephen, who's being stoned to death. And right before he's stoned, he looks up to heaven and he says, I see heaven open, and I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. And they kill him. Jesus looks back to this passage in Daniel. He looks back to the passage in Psalms. This is who I am. I am the human, the God-human, who did not bow to the beast. And because of that, I offer you my life. Praise God. Praise God that Jesus went to the cross for us and is the kind of king we can trust. So I've asked you this question before, but I'm asking different things with it. Which kingdom do you want to be part of? Which king do you want to serve? In God's kingdom, all the battles are over. Ultimate victory was on the cross. Do you realize that? When we see the, the visions of the future and revelation and all these things, there's a lot more to say about that. But Jesus rides out to battle on a white horse, and he's already bloody. He doesn't have to fight him. He's already won. They're, they're killing him was their own destruction. The battle is over. There is no last final fight. It's just the culmination of the kingdoms of the world destroying themselves. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won. Do you want to be part of a kingdom that keeps on warring? Give your allegiance to that? Or do you want to give your allegiance to God's kingdom? The ultimate victory. That's right. In God's kingdom, power is service. 
humility, and self-giving love. Can you imagine if our leaders in the countries on this earth used humility, service, and self-giving love as their metric for power? Can you imagine what kind of world this would be? (laughs) Not the world it is. Not the world it is. But we have a king that does those things. And because of that, when we go out into this world, and when we interact with people, and when we brush up against the things of this empire and this world, we show those values. It doesn't matter what they do. It matters what we choose. If we follow Jesus, we get to be those things. And we get to transform this world around us by being those things. In God's kingdom, you are chosen to rule alongside Jesus forever. Does this world want you to rule? No, it wants you to be grounded to the dust and give your money away to it so it can do whatever it wants. What does Jesus call for? What does God... Do you... Man, there's just, this is such an exciting thing. One day we're going to talk more and more about this. I keep saying that about all kinds of things. But God created us to partner with him to do something amazing. What? We don't know because we never got there. We kept choosing to take good and evil for ourselves and to make our own choices and to think we knew better than God. There is coming a day when we're going to get to reset. The garden was not the perfect thing. The garden was the building blocks for what God had in store for us for eternity. The future with this God in this kingdom is unimaginable. The best thing you can think of times infinity because God is infinite. I hope, I hope that through the book of Daniel, through the life of Jesus, you have gotten a glimpse of the kind of kingdom we get to be a part of. We don't even have to do anything wild We just have to say, I want to follow. It's going to cost everything, but it is the best thing you can do. What awaits us is glorious. Jesus is a good king. Will you follow Jesus? If you haven't committed to Jesus, if you haven't given him your life and allegiance, why wait? Why wait? If you need anything else, you can come down as we stand, as we sing.